Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold, and Conscious Construction starts right now. what's going on, what we're actually taking into our brain, how we're defining that, and what choices we're making out of that place. Because even when things are potentially really bad outside of ourselves, we have a variety of options with how we want to actually take that information in, what sort of definitions we want to assign to it, and then how we want that information to then inform our next course of action. Because things can be horrifying outside of ourselves And it has to be our choice if we want to take what's happening outside of ourselves and allow it to then come into our space, whether that's with our relationship with ourselves or a relationship with our friends and family, with our community. There are a variety of different micro-level containers that I want everyone to be thinking about today because it's not just, how do I let this not affect myself? If you have kids, you know that usually before you even think that, it's like, how can I let this not affect my kids? But we want to be thinking of the different containers that we are not necessarily in charge of, but we have some level of responsibility or authority, or here's the key one, influence. Because sometimes we are have influence over certain containers, but it's not really our job. It's not our responsibility. We don't like wake up with this thing on our shoulders. It's like, oh, I have to take care of this thing. But we still have the ability to be that ripple or to influence a group or a container in a specific way. So making sure that we are always in integrity with how we are both consuming information, defining information, and then letting that information change our course of action is really what I want to stay focused on today. I have this divided into two different sections. I want to look first at how we are perceiving incoming information. And then on the second half, we're going to be taking a look at how we have the ability to not necessarily influence in a priming sort of way, but how can we lead by example and actually help create that ripple for other people to be able to walk this path as well? Not through force, not through anger, right? Through actually teaching people effective tools to navigate through cognitive dissonance without having to jam our opinion down their throat, right? That's not the way we try to do things here. So first, we're going to be looking at how do we experience the world around us in our own minds, because we know that that's going to influence a hell of a lot, right? Whatever happens up here is going to influence what actually comes out of our mouth. So to try to start with other people would be pretty illogical, right? And yet, what do many of you find yourselves doing when you're looking at stuff like this? What's your first instinct, usually, to worry about everybody else, right? My kids, my parents, my community, my school. We have to really literally check ourselves before we wreck ourselves first, because our instinct is usually to focus on other people first. But if we haven't gone through that process ourselves, the way we're even approaching the problem with others is going to be carrying our wound with it. So it's our job as break either graduates or almost graduates to know that ahead of time, right? Because once we know better, we have to choose better and take some responsibility. So in this whole concept and theme that we're really focused on this weekend, panic versus preparedness, can anyone quantify what you think that line is? And I've brought up some other specific questions too here because 
especially as it relates to things like global pandemic, people losing jobs, people all of a sudden having to transition the way that they express their career into something else, right? For example, have you had any differences in how you're able to conduct business in California? Right? Did that, did that activate your root chakra temporarily? A lot, okay. But you have the tools to navigate through it, right? And can you imagine how many other estheticians in California did not know where this line was and they just literally shit their pants? Yeah? And they probably acted or behaved or made decisions in a way that probably, in many cases, led them to have to shut down their business rather than pivot, figure out what are we really looking at here? How can I pivot my business, still somehow be in integrity with who I am, my beliefs about this, and still continue my business on in a way that is sustainable? That's really hard for the vast majority of human beings to do. As soon as it's like all these sanctions come down, you're told what you can and can't do with your own things, right, that you built, that you created, that's very triggering for people. So one of the things that we have to look at when we're looking for that line, how is somebody else trying to define how I can interact with my things, right? I'm just going to call them my things for now, whether it's like your business or your kids or things that you've created. How is somebody else trying to define that line for me? And how can I look at that line and find a way to see how I can exist, not necessarily all the way in this safe space right here, but where I'm like right on that edge where I'm like showing the other side. I see your line. I'm not fucking cool with it, but I'm also respectful and I'm going to abide by just enough rules to keep myself continuing on my pathway while also continuing to hold you accountable over here for how unfair, unjust, or whatever your perception of this line looks like, right? But most people can't do that. They're either all the way in the safe space and like, I must be in fear, everything, like, right? You just kind of go into whatever the programming is. Or we have people that are like, fuck your line. I, I fucking hate your line. I'm gonna protest. I'm literally gonna burn my whole life right now in a dumpster fire just because I'm so angry that you drew this line. I understand both sides. And what I'm telling you is that there is a way to find the line, ride it, hold it for the longevity of everything that you've already built, the things that you've already put into what you love, and find a way to pick your battles, to not let the other side win, but to also not live in total fear and let down everything you think is true for you or what you've built. So I want everyone to really hold that visual because I find that no matter what happens in the next week, two weeks, three months, it's really important for you to know where that line is because that line is not going to be the same for all of us, right? And how we feel about what's on either side of said line is not going to be the same for all of us, and that's okay. I think there's this like, it's either right or wrong, and that's really not true. That is a personal choice. There is a bigger picture of on this side, this is what I believe to be true, therefore it influences how I feel about what's on this side of the line. But there really isn't just a black and white, this is right, that's wrong. And it's important for us not just to know that for ourselves, but how we interact with other people. Because for example, if we feel very strongly and passionately about our belief system and how that influences how we're looking at this line, we're not going to be effectively communicating to anybody else out of that place of black or white. 
right? We're not going to be able to understand how they're seeing it to find ways to poke holes in their argument and actually get them to think critically about why they feel that way. If we're just like, this is right and that is wrong. And that's unfortunately the way most people try to change people's minds, which we're going to get to toward the end because facts don't actually help anything at all. Raise your hand if you've tried to use facts to justify your point and someone's just like, negative, right? <laughs> facts don't work. We're going to get into that in a little bit. So what tools do we have in the break toolkit to actually see what that line is and hold the line? What are some ways that we can hold the line? Eli. Let's say Eli is a great way for us to both see the line and hold the line. What else? Radical personal responsibility for sure. Um, certainly some of the things that we've learned about red and green cones in communication, for sure, right? Because anytime we're talking about being able to hold this line on one hand, we're talking about being able to effectively communicate about boundaries, while at the same time running ourselves through Eli to make sure that we are in personal integrity. Personal integrity and how we are then selecting green cones out of that is going to do a lot of the heavy lifting walking this line. So, and again, these are going to be in your slide decks you guys are going to get, and I encourage you to really take a look at some of this stuff and ask these questions to yourself. So three experiences of panic in 2020. Does anybody have one that sticks out where even if they knew better, they panicked at some point this year that they're willing to share? Go for it, girl. I was honestly scared of running out of paper. Like, I thought I was going to okay. have to use leaves. And Thanks, Bill. Yes. <laughs> like, what am I going to have to make it I'm going to have to shit and clean up with leaves. Would you go there? <laughs> so you and everybody else. So you were the person that actually put somebody else, somebody else's butthole, I should say, at risk. <laughs> Not just somebody else, specifically with their butthole. <laughs> Does anybody else have a concern? Here, yeah, pass back to Lisa. And then we'll bring it for you. Um, well, I live with uh, my mom, and she's 74, so I really consider the risk that I was putting around by going out in public, seeing my friends, you know, all the things that I don't really want to acknowledge. Okay. And did you, you panic about it? Uh, yeah, in the beginning I did. Um, I kind of just let myself go and kind of lean more into the discomfort, but I did panic. And I have her mind. She's not really panicking though, so she didn't put panties. Okay, good. When, oh, here, let's go back and then we'll pass the cord to Angela. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was money because my husband was laid off and we were shut down, so I couldn't work. Yeah. And then how did you navigate through that one? Out of the panic? So, faith? Huh? Faith? Which, by the way, distraction is one of the techniques we'll be talking about today, <laughs> which can be a good thing, right? Let's pass it to Angela, and then if we want to go that way, we can. This is very indicative of me and my habits in general, but I did a lot of food hoarding. Um, going out and shopping, 
for like $300, $400 worth of food. And it wasn't even like storing like the dry foods like so that I could have it for, it was like literally it would it last like a week or two and that was it. Oh my God. $300, <laughs> $400 worth of food because I had a food panic because I felt like everything is shutting down, that like you can't get anything from a restaurant and all that kind of stuff. Like who knows what else is gonna happen tonight. Food court is really bad. Okay. <laughs> Did you have one? So for me, yeah, for me it was two things. It was um, part of the transition this year has been with me fixating on dieting. And I think that that's just me transitioning into something better. I'm shedding some stuff. So I was like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And then also, now we were going to get shut down and we were going to be controlled. So those were two serious things I was thinking. <coughs> We're controlled and we can't leave our house and we get arrested. You know, I got mean, stuck So, what got me through it was um, obviously weight, but remembering that panic never gets shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, then every day I had to get up and go to work, and I still did whatever I had to do. I washed my hands and went out sparingly, and I didn't die and they didn't kill me just yet. Amen. So, in break, obviously, we talked about how anxiety frequently shows up wearing a superhero cape and it tricks you into believing that it's there to save you. We all know it's not, right? It f- makes you feel productive. And when I say feel productive, it makes your brain feel like it's checking things off the list that could potentially keep you safe. But what we all know is that it actually just winds you up and usually just gets you back into more anxiety, which is why. I always used to describe the way my panic attacks used to work is that I would have a panic attack about having a panic attack, right? It was just like, why are you panicking? I'm like, I started worrying that I was going to have a panic attack and now I'm having a panic attack. (laughs) And they're like, well, do you ever panic about anything else? And I was like, no, I only panic about having panic attacks. And if I really track it back, the first one I ever had, I was nine years old. It caught me completely off guard. I had no idea what it was. I was watching a TV show and all of a sudden my body starts shaking. I'm like, (gasps) and my dad's like, Elizabeth, are you okay? I was like, I'm fine. He's like, you don't look fine. I was like, I'm, I'm holding it together. I'm fine. Let's go back to ER where this person is is dying of some mysterious illness, which is obviously why I was having an anxiety attack. I'm like, let's go back to ER. It was great for a nine-year-old. <laughs> He's like, Elizabeth, I think you have to walk this off. And I'm like, I'll go walk it off. But then, of course, from that moment forward, not knowing where it came from or how it got there made me believe that it literally was stalking me around every corner. So then I started having panic attacks every day until I was 20 years old. It's terrible. So it is important for us to remember that while panic can trick our brain into thinking that like, we're being vigilant, we're being protective, we've got to protect everyone we love, it's really important for us to run through those questions and say, actually, is what I am spending my time and energy on in this panicked state, are all these check boxes that my brain is giving to me, are they actually productive or is this like my anxiety superhero cape flapping in the wind being like, we're here to save you, slash ruin your life. Right, so just keep that visual because sometimes when we go into that state of hypervigilance, we feel like very justified in our actions. It can be pretty easy for us to visualize that cape and be like, is this you or is this, is this me being 
an upstanding citizen because sometimes we'll just see the flapping cape and we're like, oh shit, I know where we're at. So I think to help you move from one to the other when you do eventually fill this out, three experiences where you were prepared and that allowed you to stay present and calm. Because I know for me, instead of panicking about something without taking some sort of steps to ease my brain, it will just loop in the background and take over my bandwidth so that I can't focus on anything else. Versus if something is concerning to me, for example, my family, I wouldn't say that we're like doomsday preppers, but like we're prepared. Could we last for one whole year? We could. Do I do that in a panic stricken way? No. That was a very, a very intentional few days of like, these are all the things that we're going to need. And then this way they can live in the garage. and We never have to think about it ever again. Right? Some people would call that crazy. Other people would call that prepared because to me, I don't want to think as soon as something happens, like, do I have enough to take care of my family? I just know I already did that shit. I don't have to think about it anymore. No matter what happens, no matter how bad things seem for a day or seem like they're getting better, I just know I've already done that. It's already checked off the list. I don't have to waste any energy on it. And that's a very tangible crescendo type of experience, but we can do this in a variety of ways, right? Where instead of letting it just always linger in the background, what are a few steps we can take to just check that off the list so that Anytime our brain is like, but what if? It's like, handled, already did that, don't need to stress about it. So when we look at how do we Eli when the danger is real? Because I think for no matter how you feel about what has happened over the last year, there are a variety of things that have been justifiably dangerous, right? Whether your fear is the chaos on the streets or your fear is a virus that you can't see coming, both are, are real and both have a danger element attached to them. So it's important for us to go through these questions to make sure that we're not just approaching these things as if the danger is clear and present and we should panic and shut everything down right now because that's not necessarily the justified response here. So can we use Eli questions about long-term goals rather than in the moment, right? Because if your brain is like, the virus is real, but am I gonna die right now? Do I eat healthy? Do I take care of myself? Am I taking precautions? Yes, right? What is the long-term picture that I'm looking at here, right? So no matter how you feel about that, if you look at how you care for yourself and where you look out at that point out in the future, where do you want to be then and allow that to then reverse engineer back to how am I going to handle this right now in this moment? Because something that is inherently dangerous doesn't mean that it's inherently dangerous at every moment or inherently dangerous at a percentage that you're not willing to risk, which is, I think, an important part here because we take calculated risk all the time. Life in general is very risky, which is why at a certain point too, just acknowledging we actually take kind of a lot of risks throughout the day and we don't really think about it unless we're really confronted with data all the time to back up why you actually should be afraid of this thing. We just kind of like operate with what our experience has been. Like I have only been in a car accident when I was in high school. So like I just don't really think about car accidents, but somebody that's been in a lot of car accidents as an adult probably has a flash about that when they get in the car to drive. That doesn't happen to me because it's not been my experience. Now, if I were to go sit there 
and fixate on the statistics about car accidents, do you think I would probably think about it the next time I get in the car? Right? So just keep that in mind. We can look into and fixate on data to pretty much back up anything that we choose, or we can choose to go off of our personal experience, still acknowledge that the data is out there, choose to pop in and pop out as we feel necessary, but to allow ourselves to constantly fixate on different things, to let that be the justification for why we should panic every time we get behind the wheel, is that going to lead to a good quality of life overall? Like, is driving just kind of a part of life? And while it's inherently risky, a lot of us can't get around having to do it, right? So we either have to decide, do I want to walk my ass 100 miles a week, or do I want to take some calculated risk and try to be a good driver, be a defensive driver, right? Okay, and of course, that's where the controlled surrender comes in. Is this danger something I'm willing to risk for either the greater good or my long-term goals, knowing that there's risk, but it's not a risk that I'm going to obsess over minute to minute? And then not get fixated on data, because data can be anyone that's ever taken a statistics class I know, data, I know data feels very cut and dry, it's not. You can manipulate data so easily in a variety of ways. So really, whoever is controlling the study and collection of data, quite literally, if they want to see a certain result and they see that if I just take out these two variables, all of a sudden the curve looks the way I want it to look, that's actually the way data happens. So for those of you that are like, it was in a study. I too could make a study that says anything I want it to say. So just keep that in mind, right? We have to even look objectively at data and see that really data can be skewed and often is. One of the great things you can do, which is just a little side bit, look at who created the data and look at who funded the research. Because often if you look at who funded the research, you can figure out in which direction said data is skewed. Yeah. Kara, has this been your, your experience with data? You're sitting there nodding your back. You're like, Okay, so anytime somebody's like, but the data, it's like, well, would you like a little lesson in statistics? This one's a really important one. I feel like I was having a conversation with somebody about this yesterday. Was it you? This, this morning. Feels like a lifetime. It really, I don't, I don't know what happened in the last few hours, but glad we're back. So discernment, very important tool here. And I want to be very clear that the follow your gut, not the same as discernment. When people are like, follow your gut. If we think about gut health, right? And then gut issues, do we really think the gut is where your discernment comes from? No, that's where your root shocker poop issues come from. <laughs> it's not where the clarity is. Nothing clear is coming from your gut. Your gut is what is linked to your IBS, to your Crohn's, to your constipation, and all of your other nutritional deficits, okay? It's not what's going to give you the clear perception of what's going to happen next. So gut is instinct, survival mode, and pattern, right? Very different than intuition. Gut and intuition, not the same. 
So when we're talking about discernment here, we're not simply talking about intuition. We're talking about using Eli, not just looking at one data source, but let's look at five different data sources who all have conflicting views, because we all know that somewhere in the middle of all those things, mixed with then our intuition is the truth. And the sooner that we can really start to make that a part of our daily practice, the better off we're all going to be. Because as soon as somebody says, follow your gut, you're probably going to be following your emotions, not using logic, and then you're going to be shitting your pants. Here's another way that a lot of people get tripped up. Maybe not you anymore. But it's pretty easy to fall victim to this if you're not aware and or looking for it and or even know what it means. So priming and indoctrination. Priming is a phenomenon in which exposure to one stimulus influences how a person responds to subsequent and related stimulus. If you have watched any of my Unit 4 lectures, I talk about this a lot. This can influence how the next generations experience their trauma or the story of their people. This is how we get primed into believing certain stories about our history, the political spectrum, how people came to be here, right? How many of us just kind of learned everything and then we got to a certain point, maybe like, let's say, I'm gonna pick an average of three years ago before any of you would have probably taken a break except a few, where if somebody asked you, but yeah, how do you actually know that? Other than like, I know that they gave it to you in a textbook and then the next textbook and then the next textbook and then you got tested on it and then the next textbook. But like, do you know now? Most people would be like, well, I mean, they told me one plus one equals two. So therefore two plus two equals four and then four times two equals eight because the math checks out. Unfortunately, when you look at things like priming and indoctrination, they are all these very simple tools and building blocks that are sequentially added to your brain on purpose so that by the time you get to like advanced multiplication, you're like, nailed it. But like, maybe not, right? Have we really actually stepped back and gone at it from our own perspective and our own critical thinking to land back in that place? Just like in spiritual intelligence where we talk about religious programming where maybe somebody had Christian trauma, they come all the way through and then they opt of their own accord to become a Christian again. When I ask them that question, what led you back to Jesus? I really hope that their answer is like a pretty well thought through critical experience as an adult rather than, I don't know, it's just what I know, right? Whatever that experience is for you, it should never be just because, because that's what I know, or because frankly, I've been too scared to look at anything else, which is often the case, even if that person doesn't want to admit it. So when we become aware of priming, and I will give an example, if you take a large swath of people and you show them a banana, either you say, here's a banana, or you actually even just have a banana, sitting on the sidelines, and then you're like, can everybody please select a color? Most people are going to select yellow, right? They're not even gonna think about it, they're just gonna yellow. It's like, well, I wonder why you were thinking that. Well, because we were just talking about a banana where there was passively, in your peripheral view, a banana in the corner, and you might not have even noticed the banana 
but your brain did, and it recorded it, and now you're telling me yellow. And you think you have individual choice. That's funny. <laughs> so then we look at things like indoctrination. The process of teaching a person or a group to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. What does uncritically mean? Huh? Right? Just is, without question. Just because, without question. Not having actually gone through your own process so that you can say, I arrived at this place because. Instead, just because. Right? And let's look at break even from this perspective. Because there's always the person in unit two that's like, oh, can't you just give me the answer? Like, why do I have to get this wrong like three times and go at it in layers only to then have you tell me the right answer? I'm like, oh, it's because I want you to think critically for yourself before <laughs> I give you the answer. It's this weird, I don't know. I just thought maybe you should know how to do it too so that you can take that with you instead of literally having to have me on like a phone a friend speed dial. Be like, so my boyfriend left me and I'm like, that's not free today. <laughs> right? I'm going to need you to look in the mirror and be like, my boyfriend left today. <laughs> what are the last three things that I did to trigger him right before he told me to fuck myself? I need you to think about that process on your own rather than having to phone a friend. That's because I actually teach you guys how to go through this process critically rather than uncritically. And by the way, that can now be part of your answer for why this is not a cult. But <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> so what are the primary ways that we fall victim to priming or indoctrination can anyone think of a few that kind of stand out what are some ways that we fall for priming or indoctrination without thinking about it kids right kids church I don't know, school right sounds right this is kind of a an odd example, but it came up yesterday when we were discussing multidimensional experience, right? We know that the brain is essentially a reducing valve and that we don't actually experience the majority of our reality, right? There's a lot of things happening that our brain reduces that down. It gives us really the pieces that it's like, you can only handle this right now, right? Which is why I believe that some people are able to little by little expand that, or in some cases, blow it wide open, and they're able to experience things that all the rest of us would have no idea is happening right in front of us. If we were to look at a little kid, and I know a lot of us have children, one of the first things we usually do is that we give them different shaped blocks that they have to hold. We tell them what those shapes are, and then we teach them how to pass through like holes, right? Where it's like, here's the triangle, right? And the kid's sitting there like trying to fit the triangle through the square and you're like, huh, silly three-month-old. Then they're like trying to pass it through the, the circle. They're looking at it, looking at the circle and they're like, what the, why is this not working? And then eventually we have trained them. The circle goes with the circles. The triangle goes with the triangle. The square goes with the square. But what if, and again, this is conjecture, hypothesis, if you will. What if the child actually came in experiencing multidimensional reality and to them, the circle didn't really look like a circle, nor did the place that they were trying to pass it through. And as they're trying to pass it through, they're like, this makes no sense, 
right? Meanwhile, you're sitting there like, oh, look at you. You're putting it through the wrong shape. And it's looking at you like, I don't know what you fucking humans are doing here, but this three-dimensional reality thing is like very odd to me. And the child's just looking at you and they're like, is this what you want me to do? And then little by little, the child now only thinks and acts the way we have taught them how to act. And little by little, that part of their brain slowly starts to shut down and conform. Now, can everyone see how this could happen? I'm not saying this is the truth. I'm just saying, seems plausible, no? So when we look at how these things happen, they usually happen in some sort of step-sequenced or sequential way, right? Kindergarten to first grade to second grade, right? You have to learn addition to then learn subtraction to learn multiplication. When we start to put all these pieces together, usually once we get to one level, it's really dependent on having us all learn these other pieces to make it true, right? What else do we know about that in terms of source beliefs as we move forward into adulthood, right? Do we have the ability to recreate equations exactly the way we want them to be like, see, everyone's untrustworthy. See, I do always get rejected. But that doesn't actually mean that it's objectively true. We've just learned how to consistently set up the container to always spit out the same result. And unfortunately, this happens with a variety of things from how we look at humanity to how we look at energy to how we look at quantum physics to how we look at educating a child. So it's important for us to start to peel back these layers as it's comfortable for us, not like literally <laughs> ripping your fucking reality right open, which if that's what you're into, man, I mean, that's what I did for myself. But to each his or her own. I don't actually recommend the previous. I went through a few years of basically being a war vet. I don't recommend that to people. This is why I recommend if you're going to be exploring these different ways in which you might have been primed or indoctrinated, it's important to go through the step sequence first, right? So that you have these skills to keep building so that as you're like, ooh, weird, that one kind of, ooh, that one triggered me right there. Instead of it all of a sudden shutting you down and then making you have an identity crisis. Right, so just keep that in mind. This is not going to be anything that's of interest to everybody, but if it is of interest to you, approach it wisely, approach it with boundaries, and approach it with Eli. Um, so I feel like we already kind of hit that one, but how do we approach the process of awareness here? And what can we do to help our children think for themselves and actually see these things in real time? Now, I happen to have kids that, I'll give you an example, in kindergarten, they had to dress, they had like characters that they had to pick. And my daughter picked Amelia Earhart. And they had to like read a little bit about Amelia Earhart. And she felt really compelled. When we started doing all the different research, she found that the narrative that most people are taught about Amelia Earhart is completely false. She was five and she felt very compelled to tell the real story in her public school kindergarten. So she's up there with her like goggles and her leather jacket and she's got her whole thing and I'm, she's signing it and I'm translating her signs and she basically blows minds that Amelia Earhart not only was not the first woman to fly on her own, she actually had a dude in her plane the whole time. She wasn't solo. So she just sits there and then at the end she's like, Boom! Mic drop! Walks in. I'm like, what can I tell you? I don't know. Like, I try to fight indoctrination wherever I can. I gotta pick my battles. That was one of my battles. Right? 
then there are other things where she'll come home and she'll actually talk to me about how could all these other people believe this? And we'll actually engage in these conversations with me. And I'm like, okay, here's how. If their parents believe it or if their parents' parents believe it, then they just automatically think it's true. Then she'll sit there and start generating all these badass questions where I'm like, God, you're cool. Thank God that I actually have this knowledge to bring with me to help a child like that even be able to cultivate these questions because she comes up with questions that the average adult would never come up with right because her brain hasn't been shut down from processing and asking the big questions and a lot of us fear asking big questions because when we ask big questions people are going to be like you sound crazy is the moon real i don't fucking know that shit is weird People turn into werewolves and act funny, causes periods. I don't know. There's a lot about the moon that's a little suspect, if you ask me. <laughs> right? But I think we should be able to ask those questions without being like, you know, feeling like people are going to ask or tell us that we're crazy. But that's how a lot of this works. It's like there are these certain areas where if you even ask questions or even they're like, well, I know this is what we've been taught. Maybe it is true. But like, what if this and this and this? We're all taught to just kind of like keep turning against each other and be like, we don't ask questions like that. You're like, well, but what if, what if all of our math is slightly wrong? You're like, we don't do that. No, no. Because it could theoretically make your whole reality start to crumble, right? If all of a sudden you're like, well, what if math is wrong? Then all of a sudden you're like, then I spent, spent 12 years learning wrong math and teaching myself that I'm stupid and an idiot and a disappointment for nothing, for fake math, right? It just like little by little, your entire reality starts to crumble. I always jokingly say that math is wrong. Otherwise, I probably would have been very good at it, and I was not. <laughs> How can you operate in the world respectfully but not be a part of it? And I think this is a very, very important question. This kind of goes back to that line thing, right? How can we be aware of something and the rules of how that thing exists so that we can step into it of our own accord, keep our own sovereignty, operate inside of the thing, and then leave the thing and still feel 100% ourselves and not like we've had to become the thing? And that thing could be a lot of different things for you. That thing could be church. That thing could be the way this global pandemic is transpiring. That thing could be groupthink. That thing could be the way your family operates, right? How can I go to Thanksgiving, be 100% myself, step into the family, operate in the family, being kind and respectful, like making the most of it, enjoying our time together without leaving with all of my wounds activated and then like turning back into my family, right? So however you look at that relationship with the container, how can we go in and out without having to become the thing that we are in. Because unfortunately, many of us are programmed that way and activated and or triggered that way. So as soon as we go into the thing, we literally become it. Who feels like they have that problem sometimes? If they go into the thing, they become the thing, right? That's an important boundary that we have to really be aware of. So how can we understand how other people or systems see and experience things without actually falling victim to the priming or meta narrative? What's one thing that somebody can think of? Critical thinking, right? What's another one? What? 
setting boundaries. Yes, objective perspective. Yes. Pre-lie? Ooh, I like that. Did you just call it pre-lie? I love it. Huh? Yeah, it's the best. I've never heard it before. Pre-lie? I don't think, did I say it? It's, it's great. I love it. Pre-lie? Um, and the other thing that we need to focus on is how can we actually step back and squint and see the priming or meta narrative pieces before we go in so that when we go in, we actually know when we're interacting with one what, versus when we're not interacting with one. So we'll go back to the Thanksgiving example. If you know that there are certain ways that you've been primed in your family, like men are treated this way, you know, men eat first, women have this role, right? If you know that that is a priming technique and or meta narrative that exists in your family lineage, when you go into the space, you know when that comes out, either manifest through somebody's words or their actions, you know what it is so you know not to fall victim to it, right? That happened to you? Yeah, so, like, talking with my sister, I have to go into the, into the conversation with her, remembering who I am, and I have to ground myself before we talk. Mm -hmm. Because I know that she goes into either your second because you love the culture. You hear outside of the culture, and he's black, so you're really second. I have, when I have a conversation with this girl, which I do because she's my sister, I almost let her know, like, I was, I was talking great, don't let go of relationships, mm -hmm. just work through them. But with my sister, I have to, I have to go in remembering who I am. I really have to fill my gas tank up with me, and remember that I'm still my value system is not her value system. So she can feel and think whatever she wants, and I can still have a conversation with her and not fall victim to her. Absolutely, and not let what she's trying to say either explicitly or make you feel implicitly become your truth. Unfortunately, what ends up happening now with us is. As, as passionate and loving to her as I try to be, whenever I say something, even if it's just, oh yeah, I don't, I don't know that I feel that way about that. She flips out, cuts me out, hates up on me. So it's like, oh, because okay. you're not red pony. Right, I'm not red pony, exactly. And so then I just don't call her back, I wait, and she will text me, well, aren't you going to apologize? I'm sorry we had that, that interaction. I really want to tell her, you should be apologizing to me. I don't say that to her. I'm sorry we had that interaction, I love you when you're ready to talk to me and calm back. Well, so here's a perfect example. You not allowing her to control your sense of self poses a risk to her belief system, right? Like if Gina can leave and not operate if these, as if these things are true, then what about me, right? It's like it leaves that kind of shred of what if for the person that's living as if this is the only truth and they're like, but this person that I love, that I know is smart, did this and she's fine. It's almost like this temptation that their brain cannot handle. They need everything to stay inside the container to just continue to reprove their belief system, which is why cognitive dissonance happens. It's just weird to see because we're all face almost. She flips out, it's like she's having a convulsion. She, her, all of her emotions, everything spikes, and it's like she goes nuts. And I'm like, I used to think that. Yeah, that's only going to make her more pissed. Be like, I love you, calmly. 
Sorry about your emotions. How can we be kind and respectful to people who don't yet have the tools to navigate through cognitive dissonance and lead by example rather than pressure, anger? I feel like that was a great example of said thing. Because quite often, even when we start to go through the Eli questions and we know better, often the first step is to get kind of like angry about people trying to like make you cross their line or make you part of their belief system. But it's just not that productive. And we have a much harder time getting that person to ever really see things our way if we're always poking the bear and leading with sort of like angry Justice League boundaries rather than just leading by example. Because at some point, she's going to have to realize, like, I've red coned even harder to Gina a hundred times and she never cracks. This bitch is relentless. One day she's going to give you a green cone and respond. One day. I don't know how long it's going to take. Sure, her whole brain might turn into splatter mush, but one day it will happen. Some people are, are very stubborn in not wanting to behave with green cones. Because for her, what lies on the other side of offering a green cone is that she would have to acknowledge that potentially there's a whole other reality and way of living her life that she's opted out of all these years. And that's really, it's a tough pill to swallow. When you have done something exactly as you're supposed to for 15 years, and then you realize that somebody else broke away from that, that is just like you, that has all the, all the check boxes the same, and they were able to do it successfully, and you don't make that leap, it makes you look back angrily at your last few years, and I'm like, I can't open that door because then all of this will have been bullshit. It's a toughie. And by the way, that's a lot of the reason that adults, when faced with some of these bigger explorations or things where you're like, I don't know what the fuck you just said, I feel triggered, um, I'm a little scared, a little freaked out right now, that can happen because once we learn that some of those things are true, it, it feels as though it could shake the very foundation that we have worked so hard to build for ourselves. And in many ways it can, which is why it's important to do it in the right sequence. So one of the things that's also important, we all know, is not to get trapped in the pattern. And when we look at how a lot of these things manifest, they usually have some sort of pattern, right? They're never just like these one-off random things. We act as if we're surprised by them, but the truth is when they happen, that surprise is really just our little kid being like, oh my God. But it's not actually a justified, oh my God. It's a very reasonable, like, duh. This has happened to you for 15 years. Shout out to Lori, who one time in my group gives this whole thing about her boss and how she's in break because of this like explosive relationship with her boss and how she just can't handle it. I'm like, so how long has this been going on? I mean, it sounds really toxic. And she's like, I know it's like 15 years. And I'm like, you're right. You have every right to be this surprised every time your boss does this after 15 years. I'm like, has your boss done this this way for 15 years? And she's like, yep, every, every time for 15 years. And I'm like, okay, perhaps you needed to address this earlier. This sounds also like a you problem. She laughed her ass off. But the pattern is usually there. Whether we're so close to it that we just want to be pissed off at what we're looking at, 
Or we step back and we're like, oh, now I see the pattern. Because we're usually so close to it and activated that we don't see it. We have to step all the way back and then we see it. So one of the things that's helpful here is looking for the architecture. If we know what a pattern looks like, right? If it has an if X, then Y sort of sequence and we pull back and then we're like, there it is, right? But if you're staring right at the X, you might not actually see the whole pattern. So it really does require us to step back and look at it from a different perspective. Look for patterns and illogical elements or aspects that stand out. Because there's usually these things where it's like, we just agree to the if X, then Y, but if we're really honest with ourselves, we're like, the Y never sat good with me. I don't know what it is, but there's something about that Y where I just kind of went along with it because I was supposed to, but I don't trust that fucking Y. Right? But we don't quite, we don't allow ourselves to ask those questions. We're so close to it and we just keep accepting, accepting, accepting. So look for that why. Look for that thing where it's like, yes, and there's something about it that's just not quite right. Like the moon. I don't trust it. I just don't. <laughs> Poke holes in your brain's panic argument or assumption, right? Just like we would do in break with our own work. When our panic is setting in and we're looking at this pattern, how can we poke holes in it and be like, this is true, but it's not true here. It's not true here. It's not true long-term. It's only like kind of true on this study or that study, right? Be the lawyer here. Poke holes in your brain's desire for panic. And gather facts from your own experience. In addition to multiple information sources and beware of bias and fact-checking. Fact checking, by the way, I don't, I feel like, I feel like to this group, I probably don't need to say this, but fact checking is not actually fact checking. Just what? Exactly. It's, I mean, it's a very bizarre twist, right? Because we're used to like old school things. We're like Encyclopedia Britannica, like that's true. And now as soon as somebody calls themselves a fact checker, all of a sudden we're supposed to like cower in their presence and be like, yes, I'm very sorry, I'm very sorry. Who owns the fact checkers? And if you actually go on that dig, you'll find it because it's pretty obvious. And again, just like looking at studies where you can prove or disprove anything, if you just follow the trail of money that is funding said study or funding said fact checking organization, you can usually see how their fact checking is skewed and biased, right? And by the way, this happens on both sides. This isn't like a one side problem. Just don't trust fact checkers. And that's not just my fear of abandonment talking to you. It's a general, general request. Don't trust fact checkers. It's important for us to play the long game, especially when we're looking at things like what's happening right now in 2020, right? It's really easy for us to have kind of that short-sightedness where we want to focus on the things that are really scary and wrong right now and start to let those things make us lose hope in the future. Not a good idea, right? It's easy for our brain to immediately start to go into that hopeless mode where it's almost like it feels safer to just decide that it's hopeless. We're like, it's less effort to just decide we're fucked because that I can trust. That's something that your brain does, right? Where we're just, it's easier for us to just decide that we're gonna get rejected or that people are untrustworthy. So that feels safer. It feels safer for us to just be like, we're screwed, it's hopeless, we're done. Stop trying, let it go. And you better believe a lot of people in 2020 have done exactly that. 
they've really just hit the fuck it button and they're like, fuck my life, fuck my help, I'm going to drink, I'm going to do drugs. We need to stand at odds with that and say, listen, even if it sucks right now, it's probably not going to suck forever, but it's definitely going to suck forever if I hit the fuck it button and actually set my life on fire permanently. So here we can use Eli to make decisions that are in our long-term best interest rather than acting impulsively out of fear, scarcity, assumptions, or priming, and to think about the impact of the long game based on distinct groups. This one's important because the long game is not necessarily going to be the same for you as it is for your parenting, as it is for your community. So make sure that when you think of what is my desire long-term, make sure that dials back to what group you are referring to, because sometimes those things are at odds with each other, right? So yourself, your family, your community, your school. And what do you want to see happen in the world with your family, with your community in 2021 and beyond? And I challenge you to really think about that, not now, but when you dig into this work and you let this kind of sit and process, this is going to do a lot for how you live your next year of your life. But if you don't think about this and you don't address some of the existing assumptions and fears that are just kind of lingering around in the background, you might set yourself up to do the exact thing you don't want to do. So address this, not now, but at some point in time. Here's a really important one because this is how a lot of us actually get into these panic modes in the first place. If we all lived in a cave and had no TV and no social media, would any of us, if you really think about the way you live your life, would you really know that anything was actually happening? Yeah. Probably not, right? Like, let's say the masks weren't a thing. Most of you, if you think about just remove the mask, because obviously that's a giveaway. If you were just to walk around your life, would you even, if no one was telling you what was going on, would you know what was going on? No, probably not, right? And I'm not saying that to say it's not real. I'm saying that as we get these kind of visible or physical triggers in our lives that actually make us like relive whatever information we just consumed. So we have to be really mindful of how we're consuming information, how we're letting that influence, how we're labeling reality. So we have got to be mindful of our source beliefs and assumptions because they can actually influence how we're even consuming the information right? If we allow that source belief to be the glasses lens through which we're looking at something or doing research, we've got to be aware of how to use break to take that off before we're even consuming. Be present in your consumption and be able to ask yourself, Eli, questions about what you're processing. Because sometimes something's going to feel like a hard no. Sometimes you're going to be like, oh shit, I never would have thought of that before. But there's something in it that feels kind of true. And even though I don't really want to go down this road, I'm going to trust that I'm going to keep digging a little bit, right? When we're digging into research, it's important for us to dig into the things that we don't like and the things that we do like. Because as I said, we end up learning a lot from both, which is why often I will have people attack me in my DMs for a variety of different things. But Quite frankly, my response is often, I follow a lot of people that I completely disagree with as well, because I like to understand how other people are perceiving the situation so that I can be informed and communicate with everybody. I don't only follow people that think like me. And if you do, you should probably ask yourself that question. Like, why, why do I only follow people that think just like me? 
which is going to get into like a whole other part of our second lecture on victim and narcissism culture. But it's important for us to not just keep the blinders on and only look at the things that confirm what we already know to be true. We don't learn or grow that way. And then ask yourself, finally, why am I consuming this? And do I know the source of this information? And what their perceptions of reality are. Because it's not just about the who. It's about like the who, what happened to them, what choices they've made in their lives, right? It's not just like, oh, that's an objective source. Like the fuck it is, no human beings are objective, thank you. Definitely not a journalist. But what can I do to look at this person and all the things that they've done and the things that they support so I can start to kind of layer on what glasses are they wearing when they're actually saying like, this is the truth. And it's not about not trusting people, it's about doing your job, right? If we know that our childhood patterns us to see life in a certain skewed perspective, why all of a sudden would a journalist not fall victim to the same thing? Especially when they're getting paid by companies that actually hired them for their bias. Okay, let's talk soothing techniques because I feel like we've talked about how the information comes in and how we not only get triggered and panic, but how we wind, get ourselves unwound from it. I want to break it up into two different categories, right? Because we can't just rely on one. We have to actually merge both of these at a certain point. And I think it's probably clear in the way that I teach that as it relates to the spiritual, wherever you are and however you embody or envision that for yourself, my big thing is just make sure whatever that is, you use it in a way that is active and practical, right? I'm not here to tell anybody what to think or how to think. It just needs to be something where you don't let it be a crutch for you to be passive and just be like, Jesus, take the wheel. I'm not going to do anything. Other than that, do your thing. Do what you want. But find a way to merge some aspect of these questions into your practice, whatever that is. So ask yourself the big questions. Sometimes this can really help with controlled surrender, right? Whatever your perspective is on how things work or what lies beyond or what happens after death, right? All of these things can actually help you, not harm you. And a lot of people don't prioritize this work because it, it makes them feel fearful, right? You're scared of the unknown. But once you actually step into this process and ask these questions and start processing, I promise you the opposite happens then you actually stop fearing all of these things they're trying to control because you refuse to explore the unknown. Then it's like, well, I don't know for sure, but could be this or could be that. Either way, sounds better than this bullshit. So I urge you to dig in and not fear it within whatever constructs make you feel good at this time. Ask yourself, is there more going on outside of my scope of understanding? or being experienced differently from another perspective, right? Because sometimes we're seeing something and it feels really real for us. But again, what if we step back and we were to think like, okay, would Busy potentially see something different here that I'm missing? Or would Freedom step back and see something totally different than I'm seeing, right? Because each one of us are perceiving not only through our own lens, but through our own multidimensional lens. So sometimes something that feels like truth right now if we actually even just open ourselves up to be like, it's my truth, but is there another expression of this or is there something bigger? And even if I'm not willing to dig into that right now, could it even just be like a question mark at this moment? Because that honestly can make people feel 
an odd sense of calm, right? We think we have to know the answers, but when it relates to these things, knowing that we don't know the answers, but we've actually researched and kind of put all these big pieces together as much as we can, can actually feel very calming. And I think people fear it. So don't fear it. Go into it. Do I have a spiritual practice that allows me to hone my internal truth compass and both seek out answers and send out requests, right? Whether that's directed meditation or directed writing or whatever it is that you practice, it just needs to be like a simple call and response where you have a way to connect back in, get clear on what you want, what your truth is, and send out requests. So those things are absolutely soothing as it relates to the world being a complete cluster. Highly recommend leaning into those ones. Now, the practical. Am I prioritizing and supporting my health right now? Because usually the first thing to go when people panic is their healthy lifestyle, right? All of a sudden they're like hammering down bags of cookies and hoarding food, right? And that they're just in the fuck it mentality. That is not the time to let your body down. You actually need your body functioning optimally for you to be able to handle the stress, not to keep stressing it out more by treating your body like crap. Am I choosing to monitor the time energy I spend plugged into social media, news sources, or dramatic friends? Dramatic friends, if you have certain friends that you know are like really 2020 panicked and you're trying to keep your internal calm, you might need to put up some boundaries. Be like, hey, if we're gonna hang out and have coffee, I don't just wanna talk about the global pandemic. Like, can we just have a regular conversation over coffee? Otherwise, I love you. I'm here if you need me in an emergency, but until you drop out of this, like I can't have coffee with you, right? There's no problem with putting up those kinds of boundaries, and I don't think enough of us do that. Can I look at my daily life, lifestyle, and habits and adjust or refine things to align myself with what's in my best long-term interest, right? Because all of those things factor into how we're going to be dealing with this. And then in line with Joe's and my proof, uh, proofless black book, Create a proofless black book specifically as it relates to you overcoming really challenging or scary situations. Call on all the moments you pushed through, problem solved, found a workaround, used Eli, or used some other break tool to actually navigate through something that felt like it was literally incapable of being succeeded in, and you still made it to the other side anyways. So for these, I'd like you to answer these questions on your own time. Three times you navigated through something scary, challenging, successfully. What were your biggest lessons when you didn't handle it this way? So in opposition to that, when you didn't handle that same type of thing in that way, what was the fallout, right? Because sometimes when we actually look at the pain, we're like, now that I have quantified that pain, that actually is more helpful to me than the three times that I'm like, yeah, I did it. Because the pain will bring back that response in our body. We're like, God, that sucks so bad. I really don't want to do that again. Versus sometimes when we see the positive thing, we're like, yeah, that was cool. But the pain, right? When you look at them together, you're like, that's better than this. I'm going to focus on this. I don't want that. Then what got worse or more tense after you chose to handle it in a way that was not break friendly? So does all of that make sense for how we are exploring this and experiencing with our own perception? Yeah? Okay. Now we're going to switch to how do we express this and pay it forward to everybody else around us? Because I think by now, as it relates to how we do things in break, it's about us. 
so that it can be about the collective, right? It's like the oxygen mask thing, like we have to figure out how to put on our own oxygen mask so that we can help others. When for many people, our desire is like, I just wanna help lots of people. There's a reason why I would say like three quarters of my discovery calls are with actual therapists that are like, my life is in shambles, everything's fucked. I don't even know like why I went to school for this. Like I thought it was, I thought I was gonna fix myself by becoming a therapist and now I'm just like, telling people what to do while my own life is terrible, that really is like a solid portion of my discovery calls. So when we look at stuff like this, it's like our brain is like, we're broken and we're hurt, so we wanna go help all these other people that are hurt. But if we don't work on that for ourselves first, we're actually putting all these other people at risk of having to literally have all of our shit projected all over them. So the same is true for how we're dealing with navigating this line between panic and preparedness. If we don't actually go through this process ourselves, we're probably just gonna be starting a bunch of fights with people out in the external world thinking that we're trying to help them when really like we're actually just taking our own fear and like throwing it up onto everybody else. So we wanna help people through cognitive dissonance, right? It's obviously an important one. Here's some great ways to do that, which often get overlooked. Use peer language. A lot of us don't do that. We start using these big words and we start talking about all these things that just make them feel very confused and they have no idea what you're talking about. And then by that point, they're so triggered because they now feel like they're stupid compared to you. So by the time you're like, you get it, they're like, no, and fuck you, you're wrong. I read a news story that said you were wrong. <laughs> and then it's done, right? Where you probably could have phrased it totally differently continue to bring them into the fold where they're then asking questions, they feel included. And then by that point, they're like, do you have any news stories you recommend? Rather than being like, this is the one that debunks your shit, right? But to use peer language means we've got to know our audience, we've got to know their triggers, we've got to know about their culture, right? Cultural sensitivity, it's a real thing. Told you the story about the rabbi, it's a real thing. And I give you a physical one so you can be like, hoo, 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 so you remember it. But that's going to happen in a variety of ways that are a lot more implicit. And you're going to do this so that you can actually help them navigate through the tough spots. Because going through cognitive dissonance sucks, even if you're prepared for it. But it's certainly going to make it sting a lot less if you actively try to factor in who they are and how they need to hear what you're sharing. Rather than just being like, this is the only way that I can share this. So either take it or you can fuck yourself. Which is unfortunately what happens a lot. Number two, meet them where they are, know where they are in their process, and use your break skills to meet them in the place with your eyes on the prize still for where you want them to arrive. So I think there's this common misconception that by somehow meeting a person where they are, if that's not where we perceive ourselves to be, we're somehow like lowering ourselves to their standard, right? Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play these games with you where you are, little Angela, right? When the reality is, if I want Angela to move with me to point B, I have to be aware of point B and aware of where Angela is, and I have to figure out how many steps I have to take her and where she's at now so that I can literally walk her there in a reverse engineered fashion. But if I simply keep talking to Angela as if, you should already be at point B, and I'm only gonna talk about point B so that as you sit there, you're going to be triggered, you're going to hate me, and then you're probably gonna leave never going to point B. I've wasted my time, I've wasted your time. So we have to be very mindful of how this actually takes place out in the real world because 
whether it's about politics or how you feel about the pandemic or how you feel about new school policies or how you feel about spirituality, we have to meet people where they are if we want them to come with us. We can't just be like, you should already be there. What if they don't know how to get there? What if you didn't just communicate anything about how they get there? And then you've also at the same time just triggered them so now they're turned off and it's like any yellow brick road that could have been going to point B now looks like it's like covered in weeds and like a Hansel and Gretel forest. <laughs> Nobody wants to go to that. And then number three, don't focus on facts. Focus on reconciling their perception, right? So facts, as we know, can be very triggering and they also are in many cases created by fact checkers, which are not true. And then even if you actually believe a fact to be true, if it poses a threat to that person's glass house of reality, they're still gonna argue with you anyway. So how can you actually look at how they're perceiving it, how you're perceiving it, and slowly walk them down that path to be able to co-reconcile reality? Just like we talk about in break, if what I experienced gives me red glasses and what Angela experienced gives her blue glasses, we can go on a hike, we can come back, we can be separated into a room. Everything that she experienced will be blue, everything I experienced will be red. But the truth is that really our whole hike was purple and until we take break, we would never be able to actually understand that. The same is true here. If we can understand how someone's perceiving something and why and what moments led them to that place, we can actually help walk them out of that place if that's, what our, if that's what our goal is. Believe me, shout out to Adrian, fireside chat. I walked Adrian all the way through the fire. She had moments where she was so mad at me. She was like rocking. She's like, I hate you right now. I'm really triggered, but also don't give up on me. Keep going, I'm almost there. <laughs> I think it was break live like, maybe two or three years ago and there were a few people staying at my house and we had this like, I mean, it really was until like four o'clock in the morning. In the morning, everyone was like war vets in the kitchen. I don't know what happened to me last night. Everyone's like literally knowledge hungover. And Adrian was like, I feel great. And the other person was like, I literally thought you were gonna try to fight Busy and throw her in the fire. And she's like, a few times I actually wanted to throw in the fire. It was so weird. I was like, <laughs> but look at her now. Right? But it was because we sat there and instead of her being triggered and walking away, she's like, I'm triggered, but also you're speaking in a language that I understand and you're scaring the shit out of me because I actually get what you're saying, even though I'm not supposed to. And hours later, she was like, holy shit, I'm a different person. And it's not because I sat there yelling at her. It's not because I tried to jam something down her throat. In fact, she was trying to fight me. I literally had another person that same night trying to throw me in the fire. I might, I don't know. Maybe I was a witch in a past life. I don't know. There, there's a, there were some incidences involving trying to throw me in a fire, but in the morning, everyone was grateful, okay? That's what matters. So then we have to inspire awareness to actually be turned into action because awareness, we already know, is not enough. Awareness is great, and actually a lot of society is not even aware. So it's a good stepping stone, but we need to be able to eventually get them into that place of action. So good questions to ask would be, how can you assist the people around you to move from that place? How can you share a tangible example of what you've done to move from awareness to action, especially as it relates to what's happening right now? Because people are so triggered and so uneasy about the world we live in right now, 
It's a great teaching opportunity, right? I know it's like bad for a lot of things, but it's a great entryway to actually show how these tools can work in action. So use those, have those moments where it's be like, I know, I, I know this must be really scary for you. This was one thing that worked for me. I was feeling this way, I did this, and then feeling so much better. They're probably gonna be like, I'm gonna try that. Maybe they do that, maybe they do it a couple days later, maybe they come to you and they're like, what was that thing that you did? And you're like, oh, it's called break meth. And they're like, yeah, weird, I already feel so much better. Because we all know that that one tiny little tweak or the one little shift in how they're waking up and approaching their day can make a massive difference. And then what are three things you've become aware of in how you relate to chaotic global problems? Because we even have a pattern as it relates to looking at the world, right? We've got a pattern as it relates to our kids, to our intimate partner, to our family. But even from the way we've been raised, there's a way that we just inherently tend to look at global problems. So what is that and how can you use Eli to kind of keep chipping away at that and make sure that you're landing at a place of critical thinking rather than just because? Big thing here is that you have to hold a higher vision. So even when things are really shitty and they do feel hopeless, it doesn't help anybody for you just to keep sinking in that hopelessness, right? We have to be able to still hold that vision for what we want to happen, even if it feels like there are moments that it starts to slip away, right? Imagine if all the parents can feel me on this one. You have this great picture of what you want your child to grow up to be. And then there are certain moments where they start acting out, they start doing all kinds of crazy shit. If you were just to give up on them in that moment and be like, well, I know you're eight, but I guess you're gonna be this way forever. And you just like, you let go of the vision of the like 20 year olds you wanted to raise just because of like three tantrums at eight. The same thing is true for the world. If we look at the world and we're like, okay, 2020 is having a tantrum, like I give up, you know, 2040, fuck it. That's not really the way that this works. You don't just give up when something gets really hard and you're you know, in mid tantrum, right? That's when we need to discipline, right? If your kid's just like acting out like crazy, that's not the time to be like, Jesus, take the wheel, I'm hands off, you're just gonna turn into a stripper. That's when you're like, hey, <laughs> mommy needs to enforce a little bit more active discipline. Let's figure out what you're missing here and how we can correct course, right? I'm telling you, the hands off, stripper every time. <laughs> let, people be them, let people be themselves and lead by example rather than anger, which we've hit on a little bit already. But being awake doesn't mean that you get to use that as fuel to like angrily wake up everybody else. It doesn't work. I've tried it. I've been there. I've outgrown it. I've come to a much more resolved, calm place where if someone wants to completely screw themselves over, I can be fine with that. Three or four years ago, I could not be fine with that. I'm like, but why would you want to do that when here's all the knowledge? If someone's not ready for it, they're not ready for it. And that's okay. Jamming it down their throat is only going to make them hate you and probably turn against the truth at their next opportunity. And again, if you hold the big picture, that's not in the big picture's interest. That's just in you wanting results now. So we're not gonna be able to inspire people to self-discovery or actually be able to walk through cognitive dissonance if we're always on the attack. And I think a lot of you guys know, not just because I'm pregnant, but I quit drinking in May of 2019 
our goal was to do it for one year, but I hit the three month marker and I realized very clearly that I would never drink again. So when I say cheers now, it's always with a kombucha. So I just want to say cheers to 2020 and beyond, because even though things kind of feel like they're going to shit, I actually feel incredibly hopeful for where we are going, how we're going to navigate there. And I really do hope that you guys keep making the ripple and don't just let yourselves cower down to the problems and instead rise up, use your tools and lead by example. Thank you. Thanks for checking out this week's episode of The Modern Good. To find out more about Break Method, head to breakmethod.com and to check out my workshops and public speaking schedule, busygold.com. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.